This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Cardiology and Heart Surgery Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Raman Mitra, Director of Electrophysiology at North Shore University Hospital uh, with Northwell Health in New York. Dr. Mitra, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. It's a pleasure for me as well, Laura, and I'd like to thank you for this invitation to speak to you today. Um, As you mentioned, I'm currently the Director of Electrophysiology, which is a branch of cardiology that deals with abnormal heart rhythms at uh, North Shore University Hospital, which is part of Northwell Health and the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra University in New York. Um, I received my MD and PhD from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine in Philadelphia and was fortunate to have been trained in cardiology and electrophysiology by Dr. Mark Josephson. In 1992, I moved to Chicago to be the director of electrophysiology at Rush Medical College. While at Rush, I expanded our electrophysiology services at our main hospital, as well as to our community affiliates in the northern and western suburbs. And I've learned a lot about healthcare and expanding services um, beyond the immediate urban areas to the suburban hospitals at that time. Despite four very exciting years, I had little time to spend with my family and young children, so I made the difficult decision to leave academic medicine and joined a large private but academically oriented cardiology group in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, While there, I helped to found the region's first not-for-profit cardiovascular research foundation. In 2008, in collaboration with Memorial Hospital, which is now part of Beacon Health, I founded and served as Chief of Cardiovascular Medicine of the Memorial Advanced Cardiovascular Institute, which over 10 years grew from just me to a 16 provider group and was designated a top 50 cardiovascular program in the U.S. by IBM Watson in 2018. Despite our success, I wanted to come back to academic medicine to continue my research and teaching interests and was fortunate to be recruited to my current position at Northwell in late 2019, just before the COVID-19 pandemic. I also have a strong interest in informatics and have developed software for cardiology that's been used commercially, and I'm again active in publishing articles. It's it's really exciting to talk about the future of cardiology with you. Well, fantastic. And given your great experience, it'll be a a fantastic conversation, I know. What are the top three biggest issues in cardiology today? I think um, the number one issue uh, that I think is the biggest challenge for us in cardiology is the judicious use of technology. That is, it's important that we don't underuse technology as it has enhanced patient care, but we have to be careful not to overuse it. This includes areas such as telehealth, wearables, remote monitoring, cardiac imaging, um, some of the new percutaneous valve procedures, uh, ventricular assist devices, as well as leadless pacemakers and complex ablation, which is an area that I specialize in. It's very easy to get enamored by technology, but it's a double-edged sword. As physicians, we have to involve our patients in shared decision-making to define our goals. Are we trying to prolong life? Are we trying to improve quality of life? Or are we trying to do both? Will the technology prolong but not improve, God forbid, worsen their quality of life? These discussions require time with the patient and their family which isn't always encouraged by our current health system structure. And it pressures physicians to see as many patients as possible in the shortest amount of time. What satisfies me even more than having the skills and technology to cure a heart rhythm condition 
with a procedure called ablation is to hear from the patient, Doc, thanks for spending the time with me to help me understand what's going on. I'm not as scared anymore. But striking this balance is very difficult. We'll have to increase both the number and quality of advanced care practitioners to meet the human need to do this well. We also need to be aware that medical device and technology companies are often trying to sell us interventions that are yet unproven in terms of really improving health outcomes. Many of the studies that show more than marginal benefit are sponsored by the same industries, so we should be circumspect before we spend precious healthcare dollars pursuing these. Despite increasing use of technology and spending to treat and monitor patients, for example, with heart failure, the latest data published in JAMA show that the national heart failure hospitalizations have increased since 2014. Now, this doesn't mean that the technologies are ineffective, but we need to be circumspect regarding their true impact. As we are more successful in keeping people alive, we're also going to have greater healthcare costs since the body doesn't stop aging. Because we're so enamored with technology and medications, we don't do a very good job in empowering the patient to take responsibility for their own cardiovascular health. I mean, we often forget the basics, the smoking cessation, uh, exercising, substance reduction or avoidance, such as alcohol and marijuana, as well as caloric restriction. And if we were able to truly convince the patient and the individuals to follow some of these common sense measures, we'd markedly reduce cardiovascular disease. It's kind of disturbing. I often hear my colleagues say, you can't change patient behavior, but that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't believe that. As a cardiologist with several decades of experience, I truly believe that you can educate the patient, empower them to take control of their own health, but it requires us to be motivational speakers and show them how to successfully execute their plans to achieve better health. So that would be the first issue in cardiology today. And I think that involves every subspecialty. The second area that is a real challenge is information overload for both physicians and patients. Given the explosive growth of knowledge in the past few decades, it's difficult for most cardiologists to keep up even with the aid of technology. For myself, I know that I couldn't even stay informed in my own field if I didn't have my phone and some key apps. On the patient side, information overload adds to their confusion. Most patients do trust their physicians, just like all of us, they are subjected to information overload on the web, and not all that information is correct. This leads to confusion and fear. So the first step to improving patient health and allay their anxiety is for physicians to gain the patient's trust. Sometimes that means I'll tell the patient that I don't have all the answers, but I will research their concerns and advise them after that. Paradoxically, technology and medicine makes establishing that trust harder to do now more than ever before, which leads us to number three, which is electronic health records and telehealth. I mean, Laura, think about your current physician visit. The physician is asking you questions, trying to listen, and all while looking down at a laptop or screen to enter the medical records uh, into the health uh, um, in the EHR, either by typing or dictating with voice recognition technology or even having a scribe in the room. Not very satisfying on the human level. One of the reasons why patients like telehealth is the eye contact. While that may improve patient satisfaction, telehealth has serious shortcomings. Without technologies to remotely assess vital signs, perform some type of a physical examination, for example, by using digital stethoscopes, 
or being able to obtain an EKG, telehealth is only marginally better than a telephone call. These remote technologies, they do exist. We have the technology to obtain that additional information, but the biggest challenge is who is going to pay for these remote technologies? Is it going to be the patient, the government, insurance companies, healthcare facilities? I don't see anyone stepping up to do that. Should we, for instance, mark uh, the profits that are made by companies making such technologies, should those be limited by the government just as they limit reimbursement to hospitals and physicians? I mean, that topic alone could be a full podcast. Additionally, until telehealth is fully integrated into the electronic health record, including easy access to medications, previous studies and records, its promise is really still a pipe dream. So in summary, the three areas uh, that are, I think the biggest issues in cardiology are judicious use of technology, information overload for physicians and patients, as well as challenges of electronic health records and telehealth. That's so interesting to hear about. And it, really thinking through all the things that you've mentioned, um, there's a lot going on in cardiology today and in heart care. I'm wondering, how do you see everything evolving over the next 18 months? Obviously, we just talked about the telehealth aspect of it, but are there other things that you really see coming to the forefront um, when you look at patient care and, and really you know, what's going on in the heart, um, heart care industry? So it's really hard to talk about the next 18 months without considering the consequences of the past 18 months. And obviously COVID is probably the most important factor in that. So hopefully now we're in a post COVID phase as we have increased vaccinations. We won't discuss the role of telehealth in COVID, which was critical, um, but that's been really beat like a dead horse. And we've talked about that in detail in terms of the pros and cons of telehealth. I think one of the biggest challenges in the next 18 months, even in the post-vaccine COVID era, is that we need systems in place to quickly respond to a resurgence of COVID or a new pandemic so that cardiac care is not compromised. For example, if we look at some hard numbers in 2020, while COVID was the third leading cause of death, about 350,000, cardiovascular death still accounted for 690,000 deaths which was up from the year before, and cancer was close second at 598,000. So COVID is a terrible disease, but even in 2020, we have to remember that cardiovascular deaths accounted for more than twice the number of COVID deaths. Some of the deaths additionally attributed to COVID probably occurred in those people with underlying cardiovascular con conditions, since we know that many of them were too scared to seek medical attention at that time. This was actually published by some of my colleagues from Northwell last year. At Northwell, having been on the front lines of COVID, we have both strategic policy and operational systems in place to not only handle COVID patients, but also simultaneously cardiovascular patients should we be faced by these challenges again. Cardiovascular deaths, they don't just go away during pandemics, but our attention gets diverted from this due to the lack of media coverage. This is true for other diseases as well, such as cancer and depression. The second area that I think is very important in the future of cardiology is cardiac imaging. When I was in South Bend, we were one of the first in the state of Indiana and among the first in the country to provide a new technology called coronary CTA with fractional flow reserve. This is a technique that allows us to actually see the arteries in the heart and even if they're blockages, know how significant they are completely non-invasively. 
So the predictive value of advanced cardiac CT as well as cardiac MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, to predict outcomes and prognosis will become more widespread and can decrease the number of invasive procedures without compromising patient outcomes. And this is likely to improve um, as cardiac imaging is also revolutionizing our ability to predict and treat cardiac heart rhythm disorders, as well as the exploding field of structural heart disease that can replace many open heart surgeries. The third area that I would like to see emphasized more in the next 18 months is primary prevention. And part of that includes obtaining a careful family history as well as judicious use of genetic testing to better predict and prevent cardiovascular disease. If you think about it, despite all of our technology, we've only scratched the surface of effective prevention. If we spent, say, 10% of what we spend on healthcare uh, technology on real prevention, we would have a much better return on our investment. We need to keep in mind that due to the emotional consequences also of the lockdowns during the pandemic, things like obesity, depression, alcohol, and drug use have increased, and we will need to be prepared to deal with the cardiac consequences of these over the next 18 months to two years because the effects of those may be delayed. This is such an interesting point in, in looking at, you know, where people's health is at now as, you know, the world starts opening up, or at least in the U.S., things are opening up a little bit, you know, to understand where the health trends are and, and see what really, you know, you need to do to get people back on track on, uh, to prevent heart disease, I, I think is really interesting. Um, what are you most excited about right now and what makes you nervous? Well, there are a lot of things to be excited about, um, despite all, all the, um, you know, the gloom and doom that we've been suffering under with, with COVID. Uh, one of those is actually um, advances in cardiac tissue regeneration and repair. Um, there is technology that is it's, it's, it's still in its infancy, but we are, have the capability to do tissue 3D printing. It's also called bioprinting. This can allow us to actually create from cells to potentially create patches of, uh, of uh, different organs, whether uh, the heart, kidney, and so on. Now, although this may be at least a decade away um, in terms of implementation, it is definitely on the horizon. And given the shortage we have of, for instance, patients who need cardiac uh, transplant and donor hearts, I'm really excited about the advances of, of uh, bioprinting over the next decade. The second area that I'm very excited about is is artificial intelligence. Now, as you know, Laura, AI is a great buzzword, and it's used for marketing things that have nothing to do with AI. But the development of truly intelligent software that actually expands accurate diagnosis and therapy in cardiology has the potential to markedly improve healthcare and also provide healthcare to so many more people um, that may not have immediate access to healthcare. So it's an area that I've actually been working on and I'm very excited to see uh, it develop further. And a third area that really excites me is something more on a, a physiological level, which is a structural activity relationship at the organ level. In other words, we know, for instance, when we have a protein and we know its structure, we might be able to predict how it's going to work. But at the whole organ level, the heart's a fascinating, fascinating organ. It's an electromechanical pump. And we are 
even though we know a lot about it, we're still learning even more. And I think that as we have a better relationship, uh, sorry, a better appreciation of how the heart actually works, we'll be able to define better therapy. Some of the things that I'm nervous about, though, are, for instance, I think the if you look at the the economics and politics of healthcare, I think we're starting to treat patients more as commodities and physicians as widgets, and that's going to be very deleterious and harmful to both the physician-patient relationship as well as the quality of the care we deliver. There's also, for instance, I mean, perhaps one of the consequences of this is the growth of concierge medicine, which if one is fortunate enough to be able to, to afford that, it may provide better service, but we are creating inequality in medicine, um, creating a multiple tier system. Uh, cyber attacks is something we should all be concerned about, not just in, in healthcare, but in every industry. Um, and as you know, we all recently saw with, uh, in our energy sector, um, something more related to research that I think we should be wary of is any bias in clinical studies and excessive politics that override science and openness in medical research and publications. And I think some of that in part is due to overemphasis on the role of social media. Science, clinical studies, debate belongs in that, uh, should, should, should not be influenced really by um, popularity opinions, social pressure, and so on. So we have to be careful. It's, I mean, social media is a great, it's, it's a great tool, but we have to understand that it's not the, the, the ultimate judge of, of the, a good science. There's also reluctance by physicians to discuss palliative care when therapeutic option, options are marginal to no benefit. I think in general, as humans, we have a hard time talking about death. And many times, you know, well, we, you know, we just think, well, we, we can do this and we can do that, but we really have to look the patient in the eye and their family and ask ourselves, are we really helping the person? Sometimes the best thing to do is to make the person comfortable, and um, and that is those are difficult conversations. Finally, if we're too successful with less invasive cardiac procedures, such as you've probably heard of like TAVR, which is replacing aortic valves, which would require surgery before, or even we can clip valves without opening up the patient, uh, without doing a um, what's called a sternotomy or or cutting into the chest. I sometimes wonder, will we have enough experienced cardiovascular surgeons in the future, because there's some things that have to be done by them. And if we're starting to do more and more procedures less invasively uh, that supplants what they used to do, you know, we, we should think about some of the unintended consequences. Absolutely. I think that's a really great point. Um, you know, and, and when you're looking at those consequences, what types of things do you foresee happening um, if that reality plays out? So what might happen is that there are um, several types of uh, procedures that can only be done surgically. And what happens is that uh, when you have less and less of the, what we would call the bread and butter procedures, um, like uh, valve replacement um, and so on being done, then people coming through training are not as experienced. So, you know, we kind of tend to have, look at open heart surgery as well. It's kind of one category, but even with an open heart surgery, there's bypass surgery, which is, you know, kind of very common, but valve surgery requires some different skills. And so if 
people in training are having less and less experience with that. Not everything can be done with a percutaneous procedure. So, you know, there are potentially risks of not having skilled individuals to do those uh, procedures when needed because they just haven't uh, seen enough of those during training. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for going through that with us. Now, before we wrap up our conversation, can you share three pieces of advice for emerging physician leaders today? Uh, yes, absolutely. And and a lot of this is, I, I've been fortunate to have been in different healthcare settings, you know, uh, academic settings, um, high power community hospitals, hospital-based practices. And I, I've, I've, I've learned a lot um, uh, from those experiences. And obviously, I wish I knew all of that when I started, because mistakes have been made along the way. But I would say the first thing in terms of uh, emerging phys- physician leaders is that they need to invest in people around them. So the first thing that I would, now with the experience I've gained, is that you have to give serious thought to the culture you want to create. Get to really know the people you are leading. Recognize that everybody has strengths, but they have weaknesses, including yourself. Set people up for success and not failure by placing them into positions that require their strengths, but won't expose their weaknesses. The second thing is it's, it's not enough to have vision. You have to know how to execute that vision. If your operational skills, for example, are not that strong, surround yourself with people who can help you achieve your vision. Balancing and optimizing the role and cooperation of physician leaders, as well as the non-physician administrators whom we all work with, is also very critical to achieve success in our current healthcare model, because together, we can better lobby for meaningful policy to decrease waste and improve outcomes. And finally, we're not like other industries. Our patients aren't commodities. Our leadership style must encourage our entire organization to treat patients with empathy and respect. So those are the three things that I would advise any emerging physician leaders today. Dr. Mitra, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fantastic discussion and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. I do as well. Or thank you very much for having me. This is a really real pleasure.